Welcome back to Can You Hear Us? My name is Madeira. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I'm joined once again by my lovely friend and co-anchor, Monica. Hi, Monica. Hi, uh, how are you, Madeira? I'm good. How are you? Are you ready for today's episode? I am. I am. But it's freezing here in Luxembourg. I don't know why it decided to go from 10 degrees to minus two, but it's life. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'll live. Yeah. I feel like we're heading into the part of winter where it just mm -hmm. lasts for five months and you're hoping <laughs> for summer to come and then it plays a trick on you and it's, you know, really hot and then it goes back into freezing temperatures. So I'm feeling the same way. But I'm yeah. really excited about this episode. I think that we are really excited to bring it to our lovely listeners. And I think it's a really important topic. Um, don't you think? No, absolutely. I'm so excited to highlight this person. I feel like personally, I've learned so much from them throughout the years. So I'm just really excited for the world to get to know them a bit more. Well, <laughs> before we begin, just want to reiterate, as always, Can You Hear Us acknowledges that we do not represent all Black, Indigenous women of color, that we can only speak from our experiences and perspective, but we strive for inclusivity in both our conversations, our team, and our guests. And as always, we are always open to feedback from our listeners and special shout out to the LSE Department of International Development that helps promote this podcast, in particular, the communication team. Deepa and Anna, you are wonderful. So with that, I'll hand it over to Monica. What are we talking about today? Right. Today's episode is all about dualities. So more specifically about dualities within international development. So while there are many reasons for why we thought of this specific topic and why it would be interesting to discuss, the biggest reason is it was inspired by both ourselves, but most importantly, our past guests. In general, on Can You Hear Us? Our main goal is to amplify the experiences of Black, Indigenous women of color in international development. And we want to share the insights of our guests in hopes that not only to empower them and other BIWOP listening who might find themselves in the same sector and or have similar views or experiences and questions. Um, and we want them to feel not only validated, but also to increase the visibility of these ideas and these conversations. And this is because a lot of the times our ideas, as well as our identities, can be ignored or whittled down to ethnic and racialized stereotypes. Yeah, or in some cases seen as simply not the correct way of going about the work that we do, fortunately. And for many of our guests, when we ask them about how their identities take part and how they approach their work, they respond usually with the exact same phrase. This is not all I am. Meaning, while their identity as a Black, Indigenous, or woman of color might affect their approach to work, it is not the only piece of their identity or personhood that informs their approach. It is simply one piece of many. And sometimes these pieces can be both opposites of one another and exist at the same time. And much like us, the multisectoral evolution of international development seems to also operate in different dualities, both in theory, practice, and the workforce. So, today... We want to dig deeper into whether these dualities of our identity and the dualities of the way in which international development work operates are interconnected, and if we should move completely away from working within dualities in development altogether. And to achieve this, we are joined by someone who also has experience with dualities in development, both personally and professionally. Yes, she absolutely does. So without any further ado, we are so happy to introduce Emily Ayiwe. 
Emini Aiwe is a Finnish-Nigerian Luxemburger who completed her master's studies in intercultural encounters. She has a keen interest in hip-hop studies, especially breaking, as she has always been interested in dancing. Her dance classes at university inspired her to do her bachelor's thesis on the meaning-making process of b-boys and b-girls. Following the findings of her thesis, she wanted to explore self-expression among breakers and wrote her master's thesis on the expression of identity in South Korean b-boys. Currently, she works as a research assistant at Democratic Society, working on projects concerning participatory processes and citizen engagement. Emily hopes to further study breaking and other activities that positively affect the practitioners and explore how such practices can be beneficial to the extending community and ultimately the country. Yay! Welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here and I really appreciate the opportunity to yeah, share my own experiences here on this platform. The honor is all ours, but we're very excited. Yes, we're very excited. Thank you so much for joining us. Right. So let's dive in. I feel like our first question and one that our research team had specifically when we were going through the guides and everything was you describe yourself as a Finnish Nigerian Luxemburger. So what makes up a Finnish Nigerian Luxemburger? Yeah, I feel like it's a question that I've not necessarily struggled, but have been thinking about since I kind of knew that these identities were a bit more prevalent in my life. So we're in high school and onwards. And a lot of my time in high school was actually thinking of like, yeah, what it means for me to be Finnish Nigerian, but then uh, living and growing up in Luxembourg. But like the past few years, I've really thought of it a bit more and realized that, yes, I am Finnish or I'm fully Finnish. I'm fully Nigerian and I have experience and a home in Luxembourg. Because many times I was thinking I'm half Finnish and half Nigerian. And what does that even mean? Like, I, I can't just be half of something, right? I'm whole Finnish, I'm whole Nigerian. So I can, right. as an individual experience, yes, I'm Nigerian, I'm Finnish, and I come from Luxembourg. And I think uh, another way that I was able to really would root my identity was distinguishing what I am and where I come from and what I see coming from is where my family is based where I grew up so that was Luxembourg that's why I can pretty easily just say yeah I come from Luxembourg but then what I possess and many things that are very present to my everyday life is Finnish Nigerian so yeah these are the ways that I've been able to make sense of yeah I mean it's a kind of an interesting um, perspective I think no, it is. And I really love the fact that you've asserted how you feel fully Finnish and you are, excuse me, fully Finnish and fully Nigerian. I think I recently had this conversation with my mentor because I always introduce myself as half. And she was saying, why half? You are fully both. And in fact, you're fully everything because that's what makes you up. So I feel like I'm very in awe of the fact that you've already figured that out when I was literally only told this last week. So yeah, thank you so much for being so honest about it. But I also wanted to add that for me, it it was end of last year that I also fully acknowledged that and was fully mm-hmm. aware of that because it's pretty interesting that when I talk to my sister as well, that's how mm-hmm. we've been identified ourselves, like as half something. But it is, at least for me, it was I was starting to think of it a bit more, not critically, but really thinking of why am I saying that? Mm-hmm. I don't see my other friends saying that mm-hmm. they are half something or, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, you're a whole human, a whole human. Yeah. And on a personal note, I wanted to ask, how does it feel when you made that shift? Yeah, that's a nice question because actually I think also another pivotal part of my identity and just experience was that I was studying in Finland for two years doing my master's. And one reason I went there was to have the opportunity and the experience of living in Finland because that is part of my mom's like entire childhood and how I spend most of my summers. And I wanted to know a bit more what it meant for me as this kind of person to live in Finland. And I think that maybe also helped me understand that while I have different experiences to some of my friends when I visit Finland because of my skin color, for example, or people don't assume that I'm Finnish or are very surprised that when they can hear that I speak Finnish or even on a good level to say that I was able to, I don't know, maybe I feel, I felt a bit more empowered thinking that mm. I had made the conscious decision to move to Finland, knowing the experiences, both positive and ne- negatives that I've had there to try and like create a better experience, maybe, so to say, while maybe that didn't necessarily happen, I think. Yeah, maybe assertive is the right word that you use there. And then when it comes to the Nigerian side, I was able to visit Nigeria uh, a bit over a year ago with my father. And I think that was also another great experience for me to understand like what it means for Nigeria for my father or his family, for example. Again, that is a different discussion because, well, they're individuals as well. So I think there's been some experiences that have made it a bit more obvious for me to think otherwise of the identity that I had previously but to answer your question i think maybe yeah it's it is a bit more assertive and i'm thinking that maybe a bit more pride in in these identities yeah. i mean i use the word assertive because too i know empower is sometimes a big word to throw on on people but i'm also really happy that that you used it and that you felt that way i think that's very beautiful as another half or should i say fully <laughs> fully yeah. makes person because sometimes your environment might strip you away from that for whatever reason it is and so I feel that that hearing that is is personally very powerful to me yeah I was just gonna say that as also being someone that is mixed and I think it's really comforting and I think people should know that this sort of idea is very common like having to sort of struggle with what identity or like box I fit in and having and wanting to be all of those boxes and checking Mm -hmm. them off but on the flip side of it being kind of an external decision that's made by other people and it shouldn't be you know like theoretically and so I think it's really lovely that in the time that you're thinking I think it's a great this is one of the reasons why we're having you on right is because this is a pretty common conception that happens and more so than we think within this kind of world and sector but also in the current world that we're living that is becoming more globalized and I think interracially like working within different groups and understanding that it is coming becoming a little bit more common it's just really it's really comforting for me to hear so thank you for sharing that with us referencing your um, bio we'd love to hear about your time a bit more in Benin and like the context that took you there and how you felt those experiences were as well for you yeah I went to Benin on this um, for an internship by the Finnish government there's these funded internships and I was able to like spend two and a half months and then two and a half months I was working from Finland like teletravail which is remotely yeah yes with the Finnish team there and overall for sure it was at this uh, cultural center in a small village in in southern Benin and it was my first time as an adult and since 
being in on the African continent, let alone ever visiting Benin as well. So first of all, it was a great experience to see another culture. It was also Francophone, so also right. a very different history to, for example, Nigeria, where my father's family is and I, I am. And yeah, I mean, it had its challenges, like I think any experience or, yeah, but it was very, very interesting to see how, because so it was an artist residency, but Finnish artists and other artists could come there and spend at least six or six, minimum six weeks there to do whatever work they are doing towards their profession, their projects. And then there's this local art center where local employees are working at, and then the Finnish trainee. So I was there is the only person kind of, the connection between the artists and then the local employees. So while you're Finnish or you know Finnish, you're helping the artists, but at the same time, you know French and English, and you're supposed to also kind of understand the local context, even though that's the right. first time you've ever been there. So it was a bit interesting the way it set up, but when I was there, quite quickly, the other intern came, so that's, there was also this onboarding session. And I think with anyone, it's if you're open and someone who has cultural humility and is open to active listening, I think it, it was quite easy or pretty quickly you can so to say adapt or make yourself comfortable and understanding the local customs for example when it comes to dressing or how to eat or these things so it was pretty interesting to see also with the other intern when she when she came and some of the artists as well yeah and it's a beautiful country that, that's what I can say and rich culture and but then there's also a lot of similarities yes so I was eating a lot of similar food so it was really really nice to be able to like use the same words because Many of the food we have in Nigeria is similar or there's just like right. difference in, in the wording. Mm -hmm. So that was very comforting. And they also appreciated some of the local employees. Like we could actually really talk about something that we shared even before me needing to understand the local context. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. You mentioned so many different, you said active listening, cultural humility. I mean, even cultural appreciation and being open. And I'm just curious because now you are kind of working within a space that would be considered development it sounds like did these did this experience really shape you going into the field really did you enjoy it enough was that one of the reasons why you were attracted to work yeah I think that and my master's studies as well because mm. the work is about participation and trying to include literally all people in countries in democracy democracy but what it means actually in like government and not only voting every how many years there's elections but the local authorities you know continuously involving all kinds of individuals with all kinds of lived experience. So I do think these specific experiences that I've had have culminated and as a bigger picture mm -hmm. have like guided me towards here. And it was something that I was definitely like wanting to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. And do you mind just kind of talking about what the democratic society does? If you, if, is that okay to ask? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like an NGO nonprofit based in Brussels and mostly works on in Europe with local authorities or universities or organizations or bigger projects that are they might not even be focused on like citizen engagement so to say but maybe mm -hmm. climate but then there is this aspect of how do you actually make climate transition like so that includes everyone so that's basically what democratic society would come into and there they would host maybe workshops or do some kind of 
activities with the organizers who then include citizens of all kinds of experiences to either bring, you know, their viewpoints, but also make decisions because it's not always enough to just understand all the different experiences that exist. But we also need to make actual impact with these individuals who can bring in these different perspectives. And I can just give quickly an example of one work that I was part of was um, on lived experience in health and social care, for example, in Scotland. And there, while it was kind of limited on what we could do, we did a workshop with people with lived experience in health and social care. And they were giving uh, examples of barriers to their participation when it comes to decision making. But then some of the opportunities they've previously had, so like what made them or what was in the process that made it possible for them to actually be in that decision making context or space. And then we interviewed policymakers to get their views of why are these barriers existing? How can they make actually policymaking and decision making more open to citizens and especially those with lived experience? So these are kind of the things that democratic society or DEMSOC, as we call it, does. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of capacity building. It also sounds like it's much more on the ground in terms of working with groups. And I I mean, I I can't remember if you said this, but is it, I mean, it sounds like it could be activists that you're working with or other like major local organizations that are on the ground wherever you might be doing this work that you work with mostly or do you also it sounds like you're a tie between the government and these groups is that correct to say I mean that's how I see it and in some maybe projects or how do you say yeah projects that is true Mm. but then also some study is to like truly be with the local authorities and making even facilitating their how do you say like work so that their work is in the future more citizen engagement friendly so it's yeah capacity building so to say but then there are some organizations that are very local that we work with in bettering the processes that exist there as well so a bit of everything in between those things depends on 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 the project yeah so cool that's so interesting and it sounds like really wonderful work and it actually makes a lot of sense you can I can see the trajectory of how you ended up there from like your experiences and yeah just really wonderful thank you for what you do (laughs) yeah just so small how to say clear in the in the bigger scene and I mean it's a it's a nice all the colleagues are extremely passionate and many of them have just years of knowledge and experience in in so many aspects when it comes to this so it's also been just inspiring for me to be able to be also on, a, how to say, almost not same level, but it's very easy for you to even ask someone, hey, can I know a bit more of what you've done? Because it sounds very interesting and they're more than happy to, you know, talk about their experience with it's yeah. I feel like within international development, what I've experienced is pretty common. And I think it's when you're doing anything involving social impact is that anybody that works within it has a passion for what they do Mm -hmm. you know it's really passion work they everybody is there because they want to make a difference whether that be good or not but I think you know the the beginning in this might have changed previously but it's always been good intentions I think whether those are good or bad intentions is another conversation, but I think it really is nice to hear that that's sort of a common thread in even all, in all the different sectors in which we kind of work within. So I, I'll go ahead and just segue a little bit more into our topic. And I think that this is a great way to sort of, you know, introduce the idea. Obviously, we did that in the introduction, but 
I kind of want to just talk about dualities. And so according to the Collins Dictionary, because we have to be superficial, a duality is a situation in which two opposite ideas or feelings exist at the same time. And I, I think as, so for me, as somebody who identifies as being Black and Indigenous, so American Indigenous specifically, so this is me identifying as being part of a marginalized or, you know, a historically marginalized or disadvantaged group who has had to operate in a specific way. And we always call it, I don't know if it's the same thing in European English or not, but we call it code switching in the U.S. So we I've always had to like kind of code switch sort of say out of the language that I use at home versus how the language that I use at work to be successful. I would even say to like gain a degree from LSE, which is a very Western uh, Eurocentric university. I would also say that like this has also helped me take part in the room that makes up international development. And on a more personal level, it has been the way that I've been able to survive some of the systems of oppression and racism that I think a lot of the times we kind of come up to on the daily, especially as an American. And so duality to me feels like a natural sort of mechanism. But like as I get older, I feel like it's become actually more of like a tool for survival, which is super sad in a way. And I, I relate it kind of to what the prolific Black sociologist W.E. Dubois has defined it as the concept of double consciousness, which is used to describe specifically the way that Black Americans would face to remain true to Black culture, so what they do at home, but they would also have to at the same time conform to specific norms or ways of living that were predominantly within white society. And so I, I wanted to bring it up because I think was asking, I don't know if it's the same for you, Emily, but how does duality operate for you in your life and potentially maybe even in your work at the Democratic Society? I just wanted to first say thank you for sharing that uh, bit about code switching and, and your um, life experience and when it comes to well, duality, because I can just say that du this is actually the first time that I've heard of duality, but I've heard of code switching. And when I was uh, listening to what you were saying, it does sound familiar, not only from personal experience, but just reading countless uh, stories online or just from different kind of individuals when it comes to different things. But uh, yes, I've had, um, like when you said you, you maybe talk differently or you express yourself differently when it comes when in your home life when it comes to uni and work I can relate to that as well but now you've really got me thinking and I don't even know necessarily it just happens right code switching is right it's it's like almost unconscious right because we just know that it's I'm feeling it's kind a bit of what like, you have to do yeah, yeah 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 I mean that's that's the word to say. So in like uni life and home life, yes. And even just with different kind of friends, you, at least for me, some words I, or just expressions and words, not that I cannot use them, but if I use them, I know it's not necessarily, it's not going to be understood or for, for many reasons. And I'm not, it's not again saying that they are less of my friends or anything like this. No. And it's not, this doesn't necessarily come to suppression or anything like that, but it's just you. I, I have a follow-up question to it too. Maybe this will just asking from your experiences, particularly with Nigeria, right? There's a lot of civil unrest, but I would also say that there is a lot of work going in to 
you know, whether democracy would work in Nigeria, what does that look like, how does civic engagement look like, especially with thinking of the whole SARS sort of protest that was happening at that time. And, you know, as someone who identifies as being Nigerian and has, you know, a personal connection to it, I don't think it, it sounds like you've never really had to work within Nigeria, but even when you were working in, in Benin, did you ever feel like you were put in your position because you could relate better or have a better understanding of what's happening on the ground versus maybe your other colleagues? Did that ever feel like you were being pointedly singled out in that way? Or did you ever think of it that way, I guess? That's actually, um, I like the question, but no, it hasn't, like, it hasn't happened. But I, I'm not that I like that that would happen, but the question is really interesting. But in other situations, just in life, when it comes to things that are happening in Nigeria, so to say, when it comes to maybe civil unrest or um, some of the attacks that are are happening sometimes at the north in the northern area of the country and things those are things that while I definitely definitely do not have any experience of that and I've had a you know, very safe life very privileged in many many ways but when I told my sister about these issues or my family it still feels something that is very very close to home while of course I'm living halfway the, across the world from those issues and you also follow individuals you have friends who are living there or you have friends who are Nigerian living elsewhere and then we're together talking about what's happening and just just yesterday was the presidential vote, for example, in Nigeria happening. And again, some incidents that happened and I'm following those pretty pretty quite quick uh, closely. So things like that are are like very, very important and are very close to heart while you're not physically or emotionally or in any way like experiencing there in the in the space. Mm. But I think I what I think you have said about having this sense of, I mean, closeness and yet being so far away and also, you know, clearly having an opinion on it. Like I, I remember when all of the stuff was happening about George Floyd and I was living in London and I would have classmates asking me about it and you know, there's one side of it, right, where I felt like almost like I needed to protect myself from <laughs> my colleagues and friends that were trying to talk to me about these issues because it felt like I wanted to, them to understand. But I also wanted I also felt like what I was trying to say was for my black family, for me and my black friends that are going through us to process it together. And so it always but it felt so far away because I was in London. Right. And going to university. I think similarly, I felt that same way in my work with, and I mean, I work in gender equality, which, you know, depending on where you are in the world, everyone defines it in very different ways of what they think gender parity should be and what equity looks like. And I think I came, I would have moments on the field where I would be like, you know, I completely understand where everyone's coming from, the local organization we're working for, but I'm coming from a, a different almost higher, like I wouldn't say higher level, but a Western view of what this word means. And I'm having a hard time conceptualizing it the way that they would like the higher level organization to work within this group. Does that make sense? And so it was always this like, you know, I understood where everyone was coming from because I think I actively listened and understood what was happening. But I also knew that there were priorities from the other side, or I guess like funders to be frank that wanted some, uh, a specific program or intervention or language to be used. And I think for me, that's how duality has showed up. 
So I, I think what you've said is super, super interesting. And again, it's very comforting. I don't know about you, Monica, but like, I completely get that sense of having to work, operate in the world. But that example also made your previous question. I now understand it a lot more, this question, and that you just said makes a lot of sense because I wasn't working back in democratic society when that was happening or mm-hmm. but they sometimes some projects that because we or democratic society has to you know apply for projects and that's how it's not many times or sometimes people are suggesting if we could take something on and in these cases what uh, many of the employees they do they they make sure that everything that is asked from us and wanted is aligns with what themselves stands for and a few times there's might be even um, how to say budgetary limitations that you're wanting so much from us to do, but you know your budget is not going to allow us to really actually go out there and talk to these individuals that are supposed to be included. So I think small things like this definitely come out when it comes to what they're trying to do. Okay, it is great, but there are many many things that need to be uh, thought of when when like doing these kind of project where you want to include citizens on, on decisions or something like this. Yeah. 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 I was just wanting to echo everything you'd both said. I think it nods as well to what Madeira had mentioned at the beginning, which is one of the ways duality can manifest um, externally for BIWOC is through stereotypes. So sometimes that is what everything maybe we are or we do or we aspire to be can be whittled down to. And it's like very, for the lack of better word, reducing. (laughs) To highlight that, we actually had some studies we wanted to share and just have an open conversation about their findings. I would say it's shocking, but at the same time, it makes a lot of sense, especially because the examples will pertain to one gender and the second one is about race. So this study is by researchers from the University of Chicago, the University of California and the University of Miami. And together, they found that stereotyping threats can undermine a woman's short-term memory system needed for problem solving. So reminding girls that boys are better at maths before a maths test will impact their overall performance negatively, categorically. And in general, the research also found that reminding any social group of a stereotype can negatively affect their outcome and performance. For instance, Dr. Bylock who was part of this team, tells Reuters, and I quote, this does not need to be just about women. If you remind African-Americans about stereotypes and racial differences, this can have the same effect, end quote. Based on that and tying into our global conversation, I wanted to ask both Madeira and Emini, do you see this form of duality manifest within international development? And if so, how? I'm also, yeah, I'm eager to hear from you, Monica, as well, and Madeira. Uh, this is a big question because, I mean, obviously this is sort of, this is sort of dealing with gender in particular. And so I think, I think I'll go from it from a different angle. So, you know, a duality that I've seen within international development that can be in detriment to, I think, the ultimate goal, which is that we would love to have all people have the capacity to express freedoms that they express freedoms have the capacity to use those freedoms whether that be democratic participation whether that be access to health care 
advocating for education, taking part in education. I think we have come from a historical lens where it has always been sort of the Western, more wealthy countries provide money and funding to what is considered the less developed countries. And in turn, those less developed countries must follow a specific guidance from wealthy countries of how to go about reaching being a wealthy country. And in turn, it creates this power dynamic that is almost does takes away from the structure and agency, I think, of the quote unquote less developed country. So I think of it as like the global north versus the global south. And I think that that can be really detrimental because I think it not only, once again, does not acknowledge the structure and agency within those governments to make decisions that would make their countries more prosperous, their people happier. I think it dwindles it down to specific criteria that the rest of the world has decided needs to be first and foremost, the way forward. And I don't think that everyone fits into the same box. So it becomes this mentality that's kind of continuously happening over and over again. And so I think that that's really detrimental that doesn't necessarily relate to gender, right? Like that can be the economy, that can be, you know, civil engagement, like you've said, Emily. It can be who is the decision maker, who is the participant and how we interact with them. So for me, that's how I see it. I don't know, Monica, what you think. Yeah, I mean, I'll jump in because Emily has given us the green light, but we will go back to you. I think it's a really interesting question, especially because when I came across this research, I was shocked because I'm personally someone that has always struggled with maths. And that's not necessarily because I started off thinking I was bad at it. I think it's like maybe a stereotype that was put at one point and it's been really hard to shirk off. And I do see how that would impact my performance. And I think speaking of how we've had guests on in the past and imposter syndrome is a big thing that comes up. I'm wondering how tied these things are to one another and how it all works globally. And with reference to international development and the sector, I think, Madhir, what you say is, is really pertinent. And I think we've discussed this so many times with different guests, but that's how I would reflect on this question. Yeah, because I'm I'm hearing your what you said, but I I know I don't know I am still a bit struggling. I was struggling with this question itself, like a bit. Let me reframe this. Do you think that from the definition Madeira sh- shared previously, and then this added component of stereotypes and how they can manifest, do you think that duality? is a valuable lens to have in international development. But you mean duality, the lens of like recognizing that there can be these different uh, realities existing, or you mean that, well, for example, here, if there's negative stereotypes being put into individuals, they may actually perpetuate it. So I think the fact that you're answering a question with a question shows us (laughs) why we're having this conversation. There is really no right or wrong answer. It would be however you interpret it as. But I I can say that, yeah, I do think it's a valuable lens to have because especially after what Madeira she's shared on on this on in international development I think if we're not aware of this and if we're not trying to work towards like I guess bettering the system or even eliminating these things then how are we even aware that they exist so I I do think duality is one perspective and one way 
and one lens to have in international development. But I think there are also intersectionality and lived experience and I think quite a lot of things but I do think that they're overlapping in many ways so definitely there is a place for that yeah yeah and it's funny that you brought up intersectionality because one of the ideas that kind of pushes back against dualities is intersectionality Um, especially when we're looking at identity but also just how to solve a societal problem and I would say that these days development really is working with that question because it's become less about not only the economy, but more about the state of people and their health and how educated they are, if they are able to participate. So that sort of idea is intersectionality. And um, just to give a overview for our listeners, this is an idea that was first published and theorized officially by American critical legal race scholar, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. But it was actually an idea that many Black feminists globally, I should say, globally Black feminists brought up before it even really became legitimized in academia. And in short, intersectionality is a theory, it can be a methodology, and it's also considered like a paradigm or a lens um, that stresses the idea that individuals who have two or multiple identities may not only have distinctive experiences as others who only have one, but that these overlapping identities would exacerbate the inequality one of those identities brings. So intersectionality Intersectionality is not about identity, really. It's about the structures that make certain identities and the consequences of and the vehicle for vulnerability. So a good example is that while white women and black women experience modes of oppression due to gender, white women might not fully understand how black women suffer from racism and how their identities, black women's identities, are caught within these two structures of both gender and race which actually makes them more vulnerable to violence, to oppression, to dealing with poverty, to be dealing with disparity. Um, and so, you know, now that I've kind of outlined intersectionality, <laughs> take it back to you, Ebony. Uh, do you think that intersectionality is a necessary approach that we need, maybe even in the work that you do, but also just to bring it out broadly into international development? But we can start there. Do you think that intersectionality is a necessary pr- approach to the work that you do currently? Yes, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it also comes down to what we've done in lived experience as well. Well, how to say, so having individuals who have a certain experience of a certain situation or issue or topic, even in the lived experience, we're always trying to make sure that when we're trying to recruit, for example, participants or uh, in the ways we're trying to recruit participants, that's the first question, like are we putting it online, offline, these things, but then also keeping in mind who is going to participate, who is present, and then of these individuals, how are we going to get to them? So I think their intersectionality definitely comes into play. So trying to understand different different experiences, who is living where, who might be disadvantaged of going online. So how are we making sure that those who are not able to be online for whatever reason are also have the ability to participate offline, for example. And I think just in general in the work, understanding that when we have a certain group of individuals that we might approach, even within that, might they might share something similar even within those, there are, of course, different experiences because they're all individuals, but also due to structures that are existing, they have very different experiences when it comes to maybe a certain topic, even though they might have similarities in, in other. So yes, yeah, definitely. Right. And I think I was going to ask you a question about whether you identify more with intersectionality 
over dualities, but I think even the the response that you've given, I think that dual like recognizing dualities is a part of intersectionality actually because you're recognizing that there are these two modes that exist that might be complete opposites, but in turn, recognizing that that can make a group more vulnerable, recognizing that that can make a group less likely to participate in civic engagement, like that is one of the crux of international development now, right? Like that's the question we're answering. And so it feels weird to even ask you that question because I feel like we've already covered it, right? Like, And so I guess, is it better to think of one over the other? What do you guys think? Yeah, I don't think. Oh, yeah, sorry. No, no, go ahead. What I just wanted to say, I don't, I don't think that they are opposing, but I think the way you put it together is that it is part of intersection, intersectionality, and I would see it that way as well, or I do see it that way. That is just like a part of it, but doesn't make everything. Yeah, going back to again what you said in the intro, Madeira. So many of our guests come on, and they will say, "Well, this is not all I am. I am not just." a bywalk. It is part of my identity. It's part of my lived experience, but it's not everything I am. That just goes to show just how multifaceted everyone is and the opportunity to be multifaceted. But what I personally like the most about the sector of international development is that it is so multi-sectorial. So you can explore even more facets of yourself because you may be put in contact with people that have completely different backgrounds and experiences and professions than you shows precisely why I think intersectionality is important in this space and why it almost feeds into it very organically. But I also agree with the uh, with the international development being so multifaceted and I the, the fact that you can have individuals with all kinds of experience in any kind of way. So I, I also agree with that, that it's very well attractive, if I can say, in, in, in this realm of work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also, I mean, it kind of talks about, again, like when you're going to study development in school you can be very generalist meaning like you can learn about all these different facets and you can also be very specialized and I think as practitioners it's really good for us to recognize that those can that's a duality right like there are people that really know like the bigger picture and there are people that know very specific things going down to like protect particular interventions that you should use or you know projects that are funded in a particular way to hit a certain idea. I think that that's really helpful. But I think that all of us should still use intersectionality as a lens to look at our work. And that's really the conclusion I've come to. And it it also makes me feel better about myself and how I'm supposed to operate too. And I think that I think you, Emily and Monica really kind of touched on that. If I can just add that what's great about the intersectionalities in, in international development is that they're also not static, they're dynamic. Like we mentioned in the last episode, the definition of international development is at times, quote unquote, making the world a better place, it needs to have that dynamic component to it to allow change and open-mindedness and uh, critical thinking in order to not do it right, but do it better than last time, at least. (laughs) And actually, I want to reflect on that because I think that was a very, very nice thing that that you said, because when you said the quote-unquote, making the world a better place, how can we then make the world a better place if we're not having that intersectional lens? It would be pretty crazy to me if not thinking of the intersection of gender, but then when it comes to 
ethnicity in each country as well, in like wherever we are, or even for men who are from different ethnicities to the other men in this country and how they are, for example, experiencing economic economic uh, disadvantages, for example. So for sure, intersectionality is extremely important uh, in international development. And otherwise, I couldn't really see it making the world a better place if it doesn't have things. No, well, on that note, in a way, we will full circle and we wanted to use a global gender gap index for this last segment in our conversation. This index is also known as a gender equality index and essentially it measures the extent of gender-based gaps among four key dimensions, economic participation and opportunity, educational attainment, health and survival, and political empowerment. It gives each country a ranking between 0.000, which is 0%, lowest possible gender equality, and one, or 100%, which is the highest possible gender equality. And that ultimately, if you have 100%, you've reached gender parity. I mean, small side note, we've discussed this on the podcast before, but we just want to remind that Gender equity and gender equality are very different things. So now we're just focusing on this index and its structure, which is looking at equality. So according to this index, and we'd love to ask you because you are Finnish and you have been in Finland, Finland ranks second almost consistently, and it now has an 86.1% ranking, and it's just behind Iceland in the world with the highest gender equality. Meanwhile, for instance, the UK, where most of us studied, is ranked 22nd. The US is ranked 30th. And we've just sneaked it in um, because, like you say, you're fully Finnish and Nigerian. And Nigeria ranks 139th with 62.7%, so still above 50% in all of these examples. So in looking at the ways in which the international development sector and the World Economic Forum developed the criteria for this index, and just in general, the discussion we've been having today about duality, intersectionality, I just wanted to get like a feel of what you think of this report and these numbers. Yeah, and it's interesting that this was here because a few years ago, well, it's not about Finland and Nigeria, but I used this uh, index for one of my essays for uni and I had to like give the history of Morocco's and Saudi Arabia's women's rights um, like legal so what are some of the legal improvements for women's uh, rights in these two countries and there I used the index to give you know the background information on compared to the rest of the world but what I can say is that still while it was really useful to give the context of what I'm about to say in the essay I actually also broke it down so I didn't only give this percentage but then economic participation for example, one thing I for sure included in the essay and as well the women's seats in parliament and these things in when it comes to participation in civic matters. So I think, so how I can answer this, like to have an idea and context, a general context to a situation like in a country, I think the index sure is a good example for one to understand the general idea but to maybe have more detailed information and to understand it a bit more than to look at these different sectors. So we're in here, for example, economic participation, how many women are working full-time and all these things. And I think that kind of information already opens the number a bit more. In some cases, there might be also maybe not better, but there's actually more women working there that you might have, for example, taught if you just looked at the big number here. The, for example, Nigeria, 139. It sounds very scary, of course. 
And it doesn't mean that while one thing of this uh, index is good or going well, that the whole index is then good. So I think with all of these things, when it comes, we're all, we've all gone to uni here in this room, I think it still needs to be tamed with a grain of salt. I think that's the, what I'm trying to say is that for sure it gives this context before you do really try to understand, I think more research would, for you as an individual, you would need to do and actually understand what does this number mean, right? And what does it mean, the economic participation? And what does it mean for women and men? And then also I realized that in at least the index that I used in 2020, it didn't have, for example, ethnicity. It just had presented on migrants, but it didn't talk about ethnicity. And in Finland, that's a whole other discussion when it comes to migrant women or migrant migrants men abilities to find full-time employment, for example, compared to those with Finnish uh, heritage. Yeah, like I mean uh, Finnish as in white Finnish heritage. Absolutely. I think that's something one of our researchers pointed out when she was focusing on this section was Iceland and Finland are at the top but maybe it's because they're very homogenous at first glance as societies and cultures and etc and what would that how would that play into it which then goes to the next question which was do you actually see this parity reflected in Finland in Nigeria in Luxembourg in the places you've been do you feel that the index in a way when you're living in a place in situ how do we gauge it how do we measure it and how do we feel it yeah again a very nice reflective question yeah how can I best answer it even for me on just a personal experience like for example the students jobs that I've had or traineeships for example in Finland and then mostly here in Luxembourg doing uni holidays is I see those who are the how to say those who are the bosses or the department heads for example actually in all of the jobs that I have had almost so far they've always been women and at university as well all of my professors they were women but okay I was I was studying psychology and we even as psychologists or students have looked into that and many times actually it's women who are studying psychology and then who come into the room but anyway point is that what I've seen for me I've always had myself like very very positive like professionally positive but also on an individual level positive experiences and images of women when it comes to just being nice per- nice individuals but also those who have actual decision making power or who are deciding things at the office there have been women and these have been in the context of Finland or Luxembourg for example. Thanks so much for answering all of these questions I know that they can be a bit tough yeah and i'll just say to to what you've said emini is it's comforting and it just goes to show again that we can use these tools to look at you know countries and kind of come up with sort of a way of ranking and it can be helpful but we can also just be mindful and learn to be mindful that these reports aren't the end-all be-all of who is more equitable who has reached gender parity it's a it's a tool and it can be used and it can be valuable in some ways, but I think also just having, again, that intersectional lens being like, okay, I know that I need to look up more than just this tool to, mm-hmm. you know, assert my ideas. And I think that that's a great way to end. Emini, thank you so much for joining us. And for the wonderful discussion, your ideas have been such a comfort to me. And it sounds like they've also been a comfort to Monica. So just want to say again, it has been a pleasure to have you. And before we kind of sum up, what we like to do is what we call um, a wheel of questions. And it's kind of a way to kind of segue out of this very serious topic (laughs) that can be very personal into more of a lighter Mm -hmm. note where we'll spin a wheel. You'll answer a very light question 
and then we'll end the episode. So are you okay to do that? Yes, that sounds very, very good. All right. All right, Monica, pass it over to you. Oh, right. For today's question, we have, who's your favorite artist? I mean, if I'm thinking this from a musical sense, so I'll say my favorite favorite artist as a musician is Fela Kuti. Rapping in Nigeria all the way, for sure. Ooh, yeah. yes. Making me feel all kinds of emotions every time I listen to the music. I feel, yeah. Yeah, I feel like Fela Kuti. And then I listen to Burna Boy which is very he's become very mainstream in america which is incredible I, I don't know if you all know this but like he's been like the first i think he's been one of the first nigerian musicians to like sell out major concert halls here like it's a really big deal and so um anyway i he has become like i always listen to afro beats afro pop and so it's been really nice to see that kind of slowly coming back here to the u.s so um excellent answers <laughs> Yes, I share the sentiment. Non-musical side, because you did ask and you specified, and we know that the question is vague, so we wanted it to go either way. Yeah, but I can't, yeah. That's why I said musical, because I know. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I get that. (laughs) Same. (laughs) No worries. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I also want to have that included in, in, in just thanking, just not me saying like, yeah, you know, but like, thank you. But I, I really appreciate for having this platform for me, but then for any everyone you've had before this and everyone you will have after this as well. So I think it's a great initiative to amplify and, you know, share experiences from the individuals that are, you know, here with us as well. Oh, no. Well- no, I mean, we can't say it enough, but thank you so much for your time and your the conversations, reflections and everything. I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today and especially in the capacity of can you hear us with Madeira? And we really appreciate all of your insights mm-hmm. to this discussion um, and truly can't wait to see where you end up next, what you achieve, everything. Just very excited as always. And likewise, uh, seriously, yeah. I wish you all nothing but the best for real. Thank you. Thanks. So with that, to our dear listeners, as always, thanks for listening. My name is Madeira. And my name is Monica. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) We would like to start by thanking our guests again for coming on today as well as the LSC Department of International Development for all its support, especially the LSC ID Communications and Events Manager, Ms. Jeeva Patel, and its officer, Anna Dalton, for all their help in promoting and distributing the episodes. Finally, to our team for researching, recording, and editing this episode. Our music is provided by a sound bank and our logo created by Gorka Abad. See you all next time. Bye.